Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Charlotte Thorne. Charlotte is the founding partner of Capital Generation Partners after a previous career in the civil service in HM Treasury. She works exclusively with ultra high net worth clients and family offices. In this episode, she sat down with Juan and Andy to discuss family offices. What are they? What do they achieve? What unique needs do they have? And how are they structured and defined? And we were especially excited to have Charlotte on as a big part of the foundation of CapGen is a decision-making factory where they tailor their services to each client and reflect their goals and values. Enjoy. Charlotte Thorne, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for coming to our studio. You are the second person that has been in the studio recording the podcast live in, I'm going to say, two years. How are you? I'm really well, and it's really exciting to be here in an actual studio. It feels really sort of novel and not like my normal day job. <laughs> um, maybe for our listeners, can you give us a little bit of an introduction uh, about yourself? Yes, I'm, I'm one of the founding partners at Capital Generation Partners. Um, we are investment managers, and we look after uh, the investment portfolios of ultra-high net worth clients, so it's a very specific um, client base and we look after their investment portfolios also real estate and direct investing and before that um, I worked in the civil service so I had a sort of slightly unusual route into um, investment management um, what was that route like I think that from our previous conversation and you will correct me if I'm wrong it was by chance that you ended up working in a family office almost 20 years ago so how did that happen it was really very much by chance. And, you know, as we're talking about decision making today, this is this is a sort of lesson. I don't know if it's a good lesson or a bad lesson, but I was working in uh, the time I was actually working in the Financial Services Authority, now the FCA. Um, but I had been working in the Treasury and I saw a job ad uh, looking for people who could speak French, who had worked in the public sector and who knew a bit about finance. So this was such a strange collection of requests and it described me. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I have to find out about this. And I rang um, the headhunter who was, uh, had put the ad up and she said, oh, this is, you know, it's a fantastic role, a, a family, uh, it's a family office um, and they, they have jets and boats and racehorses and it's a bit amazing. And I just thought, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I don't know what a family office is for a start. And I don't, I'm not interested in racehorses. I don't understand what the job is. Um, and I, I nearly didn't go to meet, um, meet the family. And, and I did in the end. And when I met them, I remember coming out of the interview thinking, I still don't know what a family office is, but I'm interested in you. And I like you. 
um, and I like the interesting things that you're doing and I think I'd like to know more about this world um, not the racehorses bit but the rest of it um, and that was nearly 20 years ago so in terms of a decision it was a really poorly structured decision because I didn't have a spreadsheet of pros and cons um, but I I think it's it's really important for us to recognise the, the, the significance in decision making of when you think you see someone with integrity mm-hmm. and you think you see someone you can trust. Now, you can't rely on that completely, but it's actually a, a huge motivator in decisions and it's one that we still use today. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I also remember from our first conversation that we, we said that we were making the point that chance and luck are always framed in a negative framework. But chance is also an opportunity, and and it seems like that was a, a lucky strike that you came across that specific ad and, and you work for for this family office. the The next question that I have is, what exactly is a family office? And that's a really interesting question because you will correct me if I'm wrong, but 20 years ago, the family office as a concept was a little bit new or was less well known. I think that's right. And and to be fair to me, in uh, 2002, when I was having these conversations, I think it was a relatively unknown um, concept, at least here in the UK. Um, <clears throat> a family office is a, a private pool of capital and owned, usually there's a there's a family in there or an individual in there uh, that's, that's controlling this private pool of capital, usually very significant in size. Um, because unless it's significant in size, it's not worthwhile setting up a family Mm. office. Um, Usually very sophisticated and also able to invest across usually an unconstrained set of asset classes. Um, So you can see already, I mean, I think it's right to say there's about a trillion dollars of assets under management in the family Mm. office space. I mean, that number fluctuates and it's hard to pin down because family offices are hard to define, but it's something like that. So you can see why from the sell side side of investment management, you know, eyes pop when they hear about family offices and you think that, you know, this is the asset, this this is the pool of capital I want to get my hands on. Actually, um, when you know a bit about how family offices work, there's also, you know, it's not as easy as all that because, of course, you know, there is an individual there or a family there. Decision making in a family office doesn't work in the same way that it might work in an insurance fund or in a you know in a pension fund. It's it, they're not built as decision making structures necessarily. There can be more nuance in the reasons why decisions are made in the way that, that, that they're made. Um, so it's not as easy as all that to to win family office money. Or also they're they're very um, different from each other in the things that they want to do, in the structure that they have, in the things that they will and won't invest in. Um, so far from being a sort of magic pot of money, I think it can actually be quite challenging for people on the sales side to work out how to interact. One of the things you have to do if you're working with family office money is put a huge amount more effort into client service than mm. you would do you know, if you're working with another, another pool of capital. Um, and that's sort of what we built out that concept is kind of what we built our business around how, how do you think about or what's the best way to understand what a, f- a family office is as an institutional investor in the sense that they are not homogeneous as maybe other pension funds are insurance companies are each I guess each family office is its own individual universe and completely different from the next one so so how, how does one go about framing what a family office is? 
I think this is one of the big challenges for, for the sell side of the industry, for the investment industry generally. Um, family offices are usually institutional in size, but not institutional in style. And that's the bit that people need to get right when they're dealing with family offices. Like, yes, it's a huge pool of capital. You know, we, we have clients who could be deploying a billion, two billion, uh, a huge, huge pool of capital. But they're not institutional in the way that they think about how they're mm. going to deploy their capital. Um, that's not to say that they're not sophisticated. They're extremely sophisticated very often. But there will be a there will be they're idiosyncratic in the way mm. that they behave. So if you're going to interact with this with this client base, you need to be able to adapt to the idiosyncrasies within each within each one and not view them as as a as a, um, as a whole. Uh, and a lot of that will be to do with dealing with the individuals both within the family office so not just the family members but also all the other people serving the family so that you know there'll be family office executives there'll be lawyers trustees accountants all of whom are, are kind of a nexus around this one family and you have to become good at making sure that you work with that whole range of people uh, and you're collaborating with that whole range of people rather than just thinking i don't care about all the rest of you i only care about the ultimate beneficial owner you have to be good at dealing with the whole range of, of people who are presenting to you in this family office I'm very interested in exploring um, how CapGen came about and the decision making process that um, was behind it because you are working a family office um, as you said before the mandates are very broad which makes the job quite interesting especially if you like investing so how do you decide to go on your own with uh, your two other partners? And, and what was the idea behind uh, CapGen? I think what we'd gone out, I mean, we started our, our sort of professional lives in this space in Switzerland. So the family office that we went, the family office that I was being interviewed about was actually in Switzerland. Um, and what was interesting to the three of us who founded the firm eventually None of us actually had a background in investment management. None of us had a background in private banking. So that was a huge sort of drawback on one level, but also a huge plus on another level. We didn't come with any preconceived ideas of how this should be done. How does the industry do it? This is the tried and tested way of doing it. Um, and that, that naivety also proved to be a huge strength because it meant we built something from scratch, from first principles. How do we think these decisions ought to be made? You know, in, almost in an ideal world, how should these decisions be made? How should these uh, family office um, pools of capital be deployed if you had a blank sheet of paper? And we built the firm around that. And we knew from the very beginning that the important things would be really significant investment in client service, because that was a bit we could see was not done well. Um, really significant investment in client reporting, because again, that was not done well by the industry as we found it back in 2003. Um, but we wanted to create, I suppose, first and foremost, an institutional decision making machine that the family offices could use. So if you didn't want to build your own internal uh, decision making machine, across all asset classes and that's extremely expensive to do so there's lots of good reasons if you're a family office that you're not going to do that in-house if you want to do it uh, outsource it we could be that machine so we very much thought of it as building this sort of outsourced decision making function um, and that function is still sort of our factory floor 
today. That's sort of where where the real graft happens. And then the additional work that goes around that is all the client service, which is which is actually the in a funny way, it's the non-scalable bit of mm. what we do. The investment piece is relatively scalable because you can make a series of decisions which you can then scale up. The client service piece is not scalable at all. And we mm. definitely built the business on that understanding. That's really interesting. That's incredibly interesting. Um, I look forward to digging into that a little bit more uh, later. Um, first, I just wanted to wind the clock back uh, a few years uh, to your time uh, when you were working for HM Treasury. Um, uh, and something that struck me about that, I guess I'd start with the premise that I think that when any of us in our personal lives and our professional lives are looking to gather information, um, you know, we all tend to be subject to, to, to a confirmation bias. Something struck me about potentially about your work there when you're a civil servant. Um, was, you know, you weren't the decision maker. So it was your job, essentially, to gather information um, you know, in a very objective way and put all of your, you know, all of your personal views aside. Um, I just wonder, you know, looking back on that experience, do you think that has helped you, helped you uh, become a better decision maker today? Yes, I think one of the things that experience does for you is gives you quite a lot of empathy with the decision maker. So as you say, as a civil servant, you're not the decision maker but you're really an important part of the decision-making process. And one of the things that perhaps isn't really all that well understood about what you're doing as a civil servant is, you, you know, you are the subject matter expert, ideally. <laughs> and uh, you, you've got all the information. You've got far more information than the <clears throat> minister has. Um, and you need to collate that information and analyse that information and come up with a solution that will work for the minister. So yes, you have to put your own personal views aside and you have to take into account the limitations that they have on them. And that will include some political limitations. So you can't make a political recommendation to them, but you have to accept the environment in which they are making decisions. So that, you know, there's obviously going to be limitations on yeah. what you can propose. The thing I think about um, working as a civil servant is you're, you're being asked to give a very clear direction. So you're not being asked, you know, give me three options and I'll choose which one I like the best. Typically, you're being asked to outline what you think is the best way forward. Now, how can the minister sort of trust you and believe in you, knowing that you've got all the information and they have almost none? One of the ways that you, you develop trust between you is you have to be very open and candid with the minister and with your colleagues about what the weaknesses are in the decision that you're recommending that the minister takes. So creating that kind of environment where you can talk really openly and say, I think this is the right way forward. I'm very clear about this. This is my recommendation. Here are the reasons why, and here are the weaknesses. And that, I think, enables everybody to talk reasonably, openly, and truthfully behind closed doors. Now, you're not going to have that conversation in public because then you'll be assailed by the media and all the rest of it. But I think that's a really important part of it. And I also think that's something that we try to do today is create a climate in our investment committees where people feel they can bring us their recommendation and also bring us what they think are the weaknesses within it. Because if we're going to underwrite an investment decision, we're going to underwrite it um, for the strengths and we're also going to have to underwrite what we think are the risks of it. The other thing that came out of that time um, was a, a phrase that we used to use a lot in the Treasury, or used to hear a lot, which is, don't let the best be the enemy of the good. And this is a classic 
sort of uh, government and, uh, and civil service way of thinking, which is, yes, there's a perfect solution, but if it's not achievable or it will destroy either your career or it will destroy the organisation or it will destroy, you know, just it's not achievable in terms of regulation or, or it will hinder the government from achieving other things that they need to achieve, it's actually not an option. So you end up often looking for this sort of 80-20 where like yeah. this is not the best possible solution, but we don't live in the best possible world. So we're going to aim for this and keep moving forward on decisions rather than endlessly looking for the perfect, perfect solution. And and was the dynamic really interesting listening to you there? Um, it sounds like the building that level of relationship and trust like with the minister was incredibly important and that meant it can improve that decision-making process over time. And what's I'm sort of thinking about, sort of thinking out loud is the difference between making a collaborative, a genuinely collaborative decision versus you have that discussion and then you know the minister makes makes the decision themselves. Um, and you may or may not have you know have, have agreed with that decision. Um, but did you feel you know was there any sort of recurring I guess sort of pitfalls or or, or, or particular process improvements that you found? Um, during your time there, that, that that could you know systematically improve, improve potentially that dynamic or all those decisions over time. Well, I suppose I mean ministers are always under a huge amount of pressure, um, and what they need to be able to make good decisions is some cover from the top level. Like okay. you know, you don't have to worry about. Uh, covering your back on every single decision and then really making suboptimal decisions yeah. because we've got cabinet responsibility here. We're going, if it's not always a cabinet level decision, but we're, we're going to give you cover and you're not going to be thrown under a bus for a suboptimal, for a decision that doesn't work out because that would definitely lead to a series of suboptimal decisions. So I think it's that goes to one of the, 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 the real significance of leadership actually that you know we need leaders who will provide cover to the decision makers to say look we you know we, we're not guaranteeing to get 100 percent of the decisions right 100 percent of the time but we've got cover uh, and we take cabinet responsibility we've got a collective responsibility for for the decisions that are made in good faith and that way we move forward rather than constantly having to hedge your bets and make these really you know poor quality decisions because we're afraid of x and y and z down the line or becoming paralyzed well, precisely, and well. I think I, I mean one. One ha I, I speak about having empathy with the decision maker. I had a lot of empathy with the decision makers during COVID because mm. such an unprecedented period of time, and you can do all the scenario planning you like, but actually, we had no idea what we were facing then. We mm. didn't know if this thing was spread by touch or, yeah. was, you know, we were washing our shopping. You know, mm. nobody knew what they were supposed to be doing, and actually really making decisions at that time and not allowing the intense intense scrutiny to stop you from making any decisions whatsoever is is really important so yes i mean we can all sort of throw abuse at the people who made decisions but actually i think it's really important to 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 doff the cap to people who have to make these decisions you know on the hoof really difficult really challenging and people are dying all around you that's you know incredibly intensive decision-making environment you know akin to being at a war i imagine mm. um and uh, you know it, to, to take that parallel further you know we try not to second guess everything that the military is doing because we are not there 
on the battlefield having to make these decisions ourselves. Now, does that mean you can't have scrutiny and you shouldn't criticise where things have gone wrong? No, but I do think it speaks to the importance of leadership and just providing some sort of moral authority to make decisions and to allow that sometimes things can go wrong, but things these decisions were made uh, in good faith and with, you know, with the best advice that we had available to us at the time. I would like to circle back to something that you were saying at the beginning of our conversation about Capgen, which is this very powerful idea, and I've never heard this before, which is as a concept of being a an institutional decision-making machine, a factory. Um, and you will correct me if I'm interpreting this the wrong way, but it's a little bit like the family office or the high net worth individual is outsourcing the decision-making in terms of their capital and how to best locate that capital to Capgen. So, and you also made the point that there's a lot of process and thought that has gone behind how to make that decision-making factory work. Um, could you please elaborate on that? We definitely thought about it in that way that 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 we you you the family office you can outsource your decision making around investment to this machinery that's been designed simply to make decisions. Now we do have advisory clients, so some of our clients will make use of some of our decision making machinery and not all. Actually, having said that, the advisory clients will tend to accept probably. I don't know, 90% of the recommendations that we make because actually ultimately what they're doing is they're buying our conviction. So they're looking for the decision-making content, but they're also buying into the conviction that we have. So it's important to say what we're not doing is providing people with a range of options and saying you choose. Mm -hmm. We're providing people with a clear sense of um, direction. Now, of course, we are also led in that direction by what the clients have asked us to deliver. So there's individual asset allocations and portfolio constructions for each client. Nevertheless, it's a very clear sense that that even for the advisory clients, uh, the advice is driven very, very firmly by this internal machinery. The machinery that we built, yes, we very much wanted it to be extremely robust, extremely rigorous, uh, and almost sort of process driven almost to a fault. Uh, so we constructed a, a, a series of um, committees, which what what we've done is break up uh, an invest, break up a portfolio into a series of decisions. So we have an asset allocation committee, which only looks at asset allocation. And it doesn't look at all at investment opportunity. <laughs> and we have a manager selection committee, which looks at manager selection and doesn't look at invest uh, asset allocation and the reason that we wanted to do it like that and actually to have quite a lot of hermetically sealed relationship between those two it's not completely hermetically sealed because some of the same people appear on those committees but we wanted to be able to say let's say the asset allocation committee decides uh, now is a good time to invest in credit let's say and the manager selection team have gone out to look for credit funds. They can't find a credit fund that they think is good enough. They're going to feel obliged by the decision of the Asset Allocation mm. Committee to put that fund forward, even though it's not good enough. Mm. So you're going to end up making a suboptimal allocation driven by one decision when the other decision would have said no. So we wanted to keep them quite distinct. Now, there is, of course, read across between the two. 
and we don't go out looking for funds which we're never going to invest in and we don't identify areas to invest in that we can never possibly find funds uh, to express that uh, that view in but nevertheless it's a sort of an important discipline that we try to keep in the firm um, and then the third committee really stitches all of those together so it takes the output of the asset allocation committee and the output of the manager selection committee and stitches it together for each individual client over time, I think that third committee has actually become more and more important because the machinery, as I've said at the beginning, the machinery of the other two investment committees is process-driven and scalable up to a point. The client side of our business is not scalable. So where we're trying to adapt each portfolio to individual client preferences, individual needs, individual feelings of comfort that clients might have with portfolios that are going fast or slow, that's the really sort of arduous work, actually. So over time, that committee has actually become a, a more intense place of work or perhaps the, the area, the one that's the least scalable and the other two, I think, are more scalable. I'm really interested in exploring the process or how, how long it took Capgen to arrive at this different layering of decisions and different committees. Because I think, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, but this structure has been in place for quite some time already. And not only that, it was there was a lot of thought behind how to actually structure it so that it works in the way that you are describing it. I think the DNA of those structures was created really fast. So we, I mean, the literal timeline was that we started working, the three founding partners started working together in 2003 in this family office. And by 2007, we'd set the firm up independently back in London with a sort of nascent version of these of these processes because we knew very clearly what we wanted to achieve with the processes. We had a blank sheet of paper. We didn't have a team at that point. We could literally do whatever we whatever we wanted. And that naivety that we had then probably helped us set that all up much more quickly than we would than it would have been if we'd come from um, you know a much more established background and we would have had the burden of all of those expectations on it and that's not how it's done in banking I know that's not how it's done in asset management so we didn't have any of that holding us back so I think that the DNA of the decision making structures is um, dates right back to the very very beginning I can almost remember you know the meeting that we had to work out how to do it and I can almost picture the drawings on a piece of paper um, <laughs> But it has, of course, evolved over time. And one of the things that we've done over the past few years that's been incredibly helpful is bring in some external chairs to those committees. And that's been incredibly helpful, actually, just to let in some cool air into the room, let in some expertise from outside. Um, the chairs that we have do not have uh, family office backgrounds. They have different backgrounds. And just having that different rigor from other disciplines has been incredibly valuable and it also provides I think for our team a really important set of set of people to learn from um, you know they set different standards we set our standards they sent they set different standards so you know it's done like this in my organization I want to see you doing it more like this and just this constant introduction of new uh, and, and sort of refreshed ideas I think has helped us um, keep the committees uh, kind of tight and and well functioning and these external actors are they always different a different person that comes to the committee or they sit i find this very powerful we had this uh an 
next week, we'll be releasing a, an episode with a jet pilot fighter. And he was, we, we, we explore with him the whole idea of red teaming. I mean, someone that will take the opposite argument of what you're presenting, trying to um, put challenge the thesis, seeing it from a different perspective. And he said that one of the things that he, the way that he would approach it was not by picking up someone from his team to take the opposite view, but bringing someone from outside that have nothing to do with flying um, jets. Because that person will sometimes ask some naive questions and some things like, why are you doing this this way or that way? And he found that much more powerful. I think that's re a really interesting observation. Um, I mean, yes, actually, just to, to answer your initial question, we have different chairs for the different committees because we try to keep them quite distinct and they have very, very different skills and different styles. In terms of trying to keep, um, trying to enable people to ask questions that from the inside you might think are silly questions, mm. that's really, I think that's a huge challenge actually um, in, in any organisation. We try to create a, a culture in the committees where um, you know, you can share the vulnerabilities that you have about a, an investment thesis that you, you're making or someone can ask a question. Say, hold on, I just don't understand this at all. You know, particularly when you're talking about something highly complex, you know, perhaps it's a sort of hedge fund strategy or something. Someone in the room needs to be liberated to say, hold on a minute, I just do not even understand what's going on here. And I think it's really difficult to maintain that culture mm. over time. I think a lot about... Um, the the emperor's new clothes you know the fairy story it's a fairy it's a children's story we all know it the emperor's new clothes but i think it's incredibly profound and important and we need to create an ability for that you know that little boy to call out hold on there's there's something wrong here uh, without <clears throat> importantly shaming anybody saying you know actually you didn't spot this and I did because that's not what we're trying to achieve this is a collaborative endeavor your question may be silly you may be completely wrong this may be highly sensible and you're just sort of displaying your ignorance we need to we need to get to a point though where that those questions are okay mm. um, you know there's a lot of talk about you know in the current climate we're talking a lot about creating safe spaces really weird you know, these safe spaces are spaces where you can't ask questions. Yeah. And actually, we need to create safe spaces where you can ask questions, where you must ask questions. You create the safe space because you've protected the people who are sort of promoting an idea, let's say, from being made to feel foolish. Um, and you've protected the people who are asking the question from being made to feel foolish. And I think that is really difficult to achieve. Bringing new voices in is definitely helpful. And as I say, you know, Neither of our uh, chairs on those committees have um, family office backgrounds. So they think of think, think things in a quite different way. Um, and hopefully we're able to create a collaborative um, and kind of collegiate but still challenging environment in those committees. But I think it's one of the most challenging things that we we have to do and we have to do it repeatedly over 15 20 years even though you know we kind of think we've heard it all before we've seen all the problems before all the questions have been asked um that's kind of music to our ears to be honest with you i was thinking uh, <laughs> you know we we kind of on our team to strive to have that culture where you, you, you we can't you know radical candor or what you will but have be able to have that 
genuine engagement challenge and debate. And I think you're completely right. It's something that you can't just, there's a lot of buzzwords about us at the moment, are there? But you can't just put it in place and leave it. Like it, it wanes over time and yeah. you start, you know, assuming that knowledge again or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, to, without it in place, I think it, it really impacts the kind of efficacy of your decision making because people fall back on their biases the same voices get heard the silly questions aren't answered and the silly questions are often often the right ones aren't the ones they? that will un- reveal something yeah, exactly. that we hadn't previously thought about uh, i think that is the work that we have to do every day so you can you know you're like you grow it's like growing a garden it's sort of something to be done every day to make sure that the the environment is right i think it's really hard actually i'd like to ask a question about a little about the kind of outcomes of decisions um and uh, anyone who's listened to this podcast and hopefully any guest whoever comes on it knows that we kind of think about uh, the world in probabilistic terms. Uh, it's a probabilistic, not a deterministic uh, world. And as we were actually talking about off air, the genesis of the podcast was um, an interview with Annie Duke, uh, who wrote the book, uh, Thinking in Bets. Um, the one thing we always talk about on the team is trying to separate you know, process from outcomes. And we all know outcomes can be a really lousy teacher. You can make an awful decision and just get lucky. Um, you can have a great process and make a decision which, you know, 70 times out of 100 would, would work out brilliantly, but it just doesn't you know, yeah. the, the time you happen to do it. Um, at CapGen, you know, how do you try to ensure, you know, that you learn uh, learn the right lessons from, from the outcomes of your decisions to kind of gradually I- improve those outcomes for your clients uh, over time? I, I think you're really right that outcomes can be a poor um a poor indicator of the value of or the quality of the decision that you that you took. I I think if anything, we're probably at risk of being a bit too far the other way because we're kind of quite geeky about the way we approach decision making. And we have to stop and remember that actually at the end of all of this there's a client who has is having a live experience of this portfolio. So one of the things that sort of slightly makes me smile is I think if you introduce one investment manager to another, they will admire each other's positioning in their portfolio. You can show show someone a portfolio that has beautiful positioning. It's sort of like a carpenter's admiring, you know, beautifully dovetailed joint inside yeah. a piece of furniture that they've built. And it's really important, and it will make your um, it will make your portfolio more robust and more fit for purpose, more resilient to various different events. Uh, but in the end, clients aren't looking at the positioning the same way that you are. They are living it. Uh, so you also have to have an eye to how does this portfolio feel to live with? Um, you know. To carry on the furniture analogy, is it pleasing yeah. to have in you know to have in my house? Um, uh, one of the other ways I think you can think about this is when you are uh, just sort of take a really concrete example. When you're expecting a baby, the obstetrician will say to you, "Oh well, you know you have a risk of one in seven hundred of this and one in three hundred and twenty of that." And from the obstetrician's point of view, that makes a huge amount of sense because they're seeing populations of women. So you can make these kind of range estimates, which make perfect sense to them. And they are helpful to you to a degree. But at the same time, it's either going to affect you or it's not. So as the individual concerned, it's kind of binary, the outcomes. Like either this is going to happen to me or it's not. So I don't really care if it doesn't happen to 699 other people. It does happen to me. So I think that's one of the things about this probabilistic thinking. Um, We need to be positioned really well 
to deal with a range of risks. But when you're on the other side of that, you also need to feel this portfolio in a positive way every day. And and us saying to our clients, oh, look, you know, don't worry about this. Don't worry about the returns. Look at the positioning is, you know, it, in the end, it's 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 not a good answer to give to yeah. your to give to your clients. But yes, of course, you know, ultimately what we're doing is positioning against a range of a range of different risks. And I think you could say in some ways, and this is where I think we're probably, you know, we're a bit extreme sometimes in this in this way is you could describe us as risk managers rather than investment managers. You know, actually, the, if you came into one of our committees, the discussion is not about exciting investment opportunities. The discussion is about which is, which are the risks that are going to blow this portfolio off course, either on the upside or on the downside. Because, of course, we also need to think about, you know, there's a risk over here that this asset class is going to do really well and we're not in it. And that is a risk to our clients because when they hear that their neighbour is up and they're not up, they are not going to sustain their relationship with us. And in the long run, that's going to damage the client and us. There are a few things that come to mind from what we're saying. Um, one of them, we had Vitali Kettleson in the pod, and he was making this analogy about communication with clients. But the fact that as an investor, you spend a lot of time researching the manager, the idea, the asset class, you feel very much in control. So when things are not going um, going against that specific investment, because you've done all of your research, then you're more comfortable with what's happening. But your end client, he hasn't done the, he hasn't done the work. Yeah. So he's very much removed from that decision. And so he's feeling the pain. And he was making the analogy of the cockpit pilot with the passenger, which I yeah. thought was very, very powerful. And I think that it has a lot to do with, um, with what you are saying. And the other thing that comes to mind is, I don't know if, if you've come across Morgan Housel. Yes. Um, did you read one of his latest pieces? Uh, he was making the case, I think it was called um, Now You Know, about how you can, you can put on paper on Excel all the volatility that you want, and you can think you are going to be able to um, endure in a in a stable way a uh, thirty or forty percent drawdown. It, that that's very different from actually living yes. a thirty or forty percent drawdown, and and that's not something that anyone can explain to you until you actually live it. So, how do you take your clients' hands so that they can walk through through the, that whole process? I think it's it's actually really profound that, you know, as I said, I, I sometimes think we are risk managers rather than investment managers. Um, and what we're managing, obviously, is is that volatility piece that people are going to feel day to day. And it is exactly like sitting on a plane, isn't it? And there's turbulence. And if you look at the air stewards and they look calm, you feel OK. Mm -hmm. And if they're panicking, <laughs> you're really panicking. Um, I, I think for me, there's a there's a phrase. Um, Grief is the price you pay for love. And volatility is the price you pay for investment return. Mm -hmm. So you can try to dial up your investment return, but you will experience the volatility along the way. And some people are well positioned to sustain that and live that. And some people are not. Sometimes that's a, a sort of a thing to do with your constitution. Like I'm just built to take this. It's mm -hmm. fun. I like it. And for some people, absolutely, I hate it. Or I just simply don't have the resources to deal with this. So... Most of our clients, I suppose, you know, on the whole, they're very long-term investors. 
family offices tend to be very long-term investors, but really nobody is that long-term mm. an investor. I mean, it's really hard to invest over 40 years. You know, if you yeah. decided this pot of money <clears throat> is good for 40 years, then it's relatively easy. You know, you just lock it up and you don't think about it for 40 years. And then the volatility is just not an issue. We'll see what's happened in 40 years. But for almost everyone, even long-term investors, that's just not sustainable. It's not how people can think. And they also need to check that they're still on course. Mm, every, yeah. you know hopefully not every day mm. or even every week or every month, but they need to check that they're still on course. So I think finding ways to help clients um, navigate this volatility is one of the most important things that we can do as investment managers. Now, there's things that we can do as investment managers to to dampen the effects of volatility in a portfolio. And of course, we are piling those into the portfolio yeah. right now because we know this is going to be a really volatile period of time. But there's also things that clients can do to manage their experience of volatility. So, for example, it might be, you know, you need just need to be less focused on the day-to-day -day returns in your mm. portfolio. Um, we perhaps need to talk to you more so that you understand, actually, we've underwritten this degree of volatility. This is entirely to be expected. We are not at all worried. This is the kind of looking at the air steward on the plane analogy like we don't look worried you don't need to be worried mm. there's also things that clients can do around for example i mean obviously the thing where volatility will really kill you is if you have to take liquidity out of your mm -hmm. portfolio and particularly if you have to take liquidity out of your portfolio at short notice mm. and that's the bit that you know that's the absolute killer mm. so now sometimes it's unavoidable but if you can find ways to extend the notice around that liquidity drawdown that will really help your investment manager to manage the volatility for you um, can you find ways to smooth out your dividend perhaps so that it's not so lumpy so that and not so clunky and hitting at mm. exactly the wrong time these are all ways which are not achievable for everybody but often for a family office they are achievable that we can help clients to make volatility a bit less of the sort of the awful experience that it can be. But again, I think we really need to have empathy with clients around <coughs> their experience of volatility because you can go into it thinking that you can sustain any amount of volatility. And actually, I mm. think that's that's really difficult for anyone. And one of the challenges, I think, on the investment management side is we can be doing a really good job in terms of managing volatility but if your client is looking over your shoulder at someone else who seems to be doing better and they just lose confidence in you, then they've disappeared. They've, they've sort of left your business. And actually what that means is they never got to benefit from your long-term positioning. They just bailed hmm. because you didn't feel, you didn't make their experience during that journey feel safe enough for them that they just bailed. Hmm. So it, it, it sounds quite sort of self-serving to talk about it in that way, talk about it in the way of losing clients. But if <coughs> clients leave you, they also are not having the opportunity to to see the, the, the fullness of the positioning that you have put in place. So it's not just about being self-serving. It's also about saying, actually, this really is a long-term portfolio. Let's try and let's try and maintain trust in each other over this long-term period of time. I guess that. That, that trust piece is just so crucial because it's that I always think that kind of certainty is, is well certainty is so seductive, and if if you're judging a you know short term outcome, um, and you know we we work in an industry where there's no shortage of people lining up to tell you exactly what's going to happen next week, next month, next year, um, 
and one of those, you know, a broken clock's right twice a day. Um, but uh, you know, it's, someone's going to be right, and it's just I think I just think you're so spot on with it's it, 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 just that balance between taking clients through the possible outcomes that that could happen, but also keeping that long term that kind of long term focus is really key as well. Yeah, we definitely had to. Um, one of the things we had to do as the pandemic struck was significantly increase the frequency of our communication with clients. Um, again, it's like being on the plane. Yeah. You know, you you want to see that the that the team on the plane are looking completely con in control and calm, which actually we were. You know, we were yeah. not panicking because we knew the portfolios had been really well positioned. Obviously, we had no idea what was coming, but we were really well positioned defensively against something. Uh, and we had some ideas where it might impact less well defended portfolios. So we weren't panicking, but we needed to be able to show clients that we had complete confidence in the positioning. And what that meant really was not tinkering with the portfolios really very much at all, but just upping the frequency of our communication with clients. and there was a sort of peak and a spike in the amount that clients wanted to hear from us and it peaked, you know, obviously right around March, 2020. <clears> and <throat> then it has tapered off again a bit, but it's peaked again Yeah, yeah. two years later. Um, and again, you know, we are well positioned for this appalling series of circumstances, but clients need to know that this is our day job. Um, and, we've been well positioned for this for a long time and this is where we've put the sort of safety measures in uh, and we are not in any way you know worried on your behalf and we're not having to make drastic calls at the last minute that stuff i think really important not just to make the clients feel good but in order that as i say they have the confidence to stick with it so that they don't end up bailing at the worst possible moment for them yeah and they actually benefit from that long term yeah, then they'll benefit from on the upside when it you know when it eventually happens yeah. We we had um, Jake Taylor on the pod as well, almost was more than one year ago, and he made this very interesting point about how people are always studying the um, the greatest investors and Buffett and Munger, and they looked at the sort of returns that they have achieved and the uh, twenty or fifteen percent per annum, which are compounded, are uh, really crazy. And somehow people tend to miss the fact that along the way those returns were achieved by volatility. It's not, most often, it's not a smooth ride. And he further made the point that sometimes maybe depending on, we, we are all said to believe that we all want those amazing returns, but maybe our personalities, the way that we looked at the world, what we can um, absorb in terms of volatility again, um, is not set, set up for everyone. And so for certain people, maybe a 15% is not the right measure. Maybe you are more set up for a 10%, which you can stomach. So how do you, how do you understand this when you are meeting a client for the first time? And what do you do about the fact that maybe they are communicating that they want that 15%, but they don't have the emotional stomach um, to put through to try to achieve that 15%. The, the, the Buffett situation is so interesting, isn't it? I can't really remember the stat, but something like, is it something like 90% of his returns he's made since he turned 65? Something like that. 
because of the power of compounding over however many years, mm -hmm. I don't even know how many years he's been investing, but you know, the idea that, that he's made, I don't know what, you know, 15% every year for whatever, 50 years, that's not how it's happened. Mm -hmm. It's happened because he's he's been at this for a very, very, very long time. And ultimately the sort of power of compounding, we know what that curve looks like, mm -hmm. you know, it happens at the end. So yes, there's this, you know, are you the long-term time? Do you have Warren Buffett's time horizon? Um, point one. Point two, yeah, what what is your... What is your constitution for this? One of the things we observe, um, we have a lot of clients who have uh, an operating business or they have um, they have an entrepreneurial background of, of some description. And what's interesting about that client base is actually they've taken a huge amount of risk in their in their building up their their wealth building up their business but they don't think of it like that they you know entrepreneurs tend not to talk about the huge bets they made they just do it sort of naturally mm. and without really worrying about it too much i mean it's not it's not my mindset <laughs> um but they they find it easy to sort of metabolize and digest that that sort of risk and of course because you know by definition if they've ended up potentially being a client of ours, all of their risks have paid off. They've mm. done really, really yeah. well. <laughs> we, we tend only to see those people. Um, so one of the things I think that happens in the mind of someone like that is actually they don't see the risk that they've taken over the over the years of their build-up of wealth mm. because it felt natural to them and it all, you know, most of their risks worked out in their favour. And one of the challenges, I think, is for people transitioning from having an operating business or having, having assets that you sort of directly own to having a bucket of financial assets which someone else is managing for you is the risk-reward trade-off is completely different. If you're going to transition to this long-term return, long-term time horizon investment programme, the risk-return the risk return ratio just looks completely different in investment management and it's much more boring than anybody would ever, <laughs> would ever think it would be. It's it just... It, it's just a long, slow, steady, hope, relatively steady, gentle gradient upwards. Because one of the, I mean, what, what we're trying to do as investment managers is stay on the horse for 40 years. Hmm. And what we're trying not to do is get knocked off the horse so that when times look much better. So we're trying to sort of pull our horns in and get through really challenging times so that when things look much better you can apply a touch of the spurs and go faster and that risk reward profile is not i think how you build a business you know that that's sort of right really pull your horns in now don't try to achieve anything um just try to survive through this period try to preserve capital it sounds it sounds incredibly boring preserving capital and also it sounds incredibly easy mm. and actually it's neither of those <laughs> yeah. it's neither well i mean it is relatively boring but it's not easy um so I think that's one of the transitions that people have to make in their minds when they move from having a, being an entrepreneur or having a, a business of their own to having a series of financial assets, particularly a series of financial assets that someone else manages for you. Mm. And you've got that agency problem where, you know, you just you fundamentally have outsourced control. But that's why you've outsourced control to someone else, that you want them to apply this different set of disciplines to managing your money than you would apply yourself. Otherwise, you'd do it yourself. Um, and th this this temperament is very specific, uh, and it's not 
found you know in everyone not everyone could be an entrepreneur not everyone has mm. the mindset to be an investment manager they're two completely different beasts i think that's really interesting i was thinking then so do you think um it sounds a little bit like you'd expect a lot of these you know very successful entrepreneurs to be huge risk takers but actually when it comes i think the agency problem is one thing but when it actually comes to investment management it's a very broad brush statement potentially a lot more conservative than than the lay person might expect I think that's yeah. right. And we and we know anyway that you experience a loss much more keenly than yeah, you experience yeah. a gain. And perhaps particularly if someone else has yeah. sort of imposed it on you and they've gone and lost money for you and you paid them to do this yeah. for your <laughs> investment management fee, perhaps that doesn't help the situation either. So I think that's right. There's, there's less buccaneering than you would think in this um, in this sector. Having said that, you know, it's one of the reasons why we also we have our investment portfolios. We also have real estate and we also have direct investing. And there you see a completely different tenor of interaction with the underlying assets. It feels quite different. And the agency problem is is somewhat different because typically we're doing that on an advisory basis. And you see clients wanting to take quite different types of decisions there than they would be happy to take on the investment portfolio side. Um when the family office as an institutional concept was born, you will correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, it came about with capital preservation as an objective, not about growing the capital base because they had already done that either through their main business or entrepreneurial activities just as you were describing. Has that changed? Or is capital preservation still the ultimate goal? Well, you know, I think for any investment manager, that is still the ultimate goal. Um, and I think unless you put that, I mean, this is just my personal view, but unless you put that absolutely central to your function, y you will end up letting clients down. Mm. But why I mentioned the other businesses that we that we run alongside, so as I say, the direct investment and the real estate is because that's a very specific function that we perform there that we are we are we are very focused on capital preservation and then on safely growing that capital in a dynamic way but over a long period of time so that is a relatively it's, it's relatively disintermediated the clients aren't very engaged with the assets that they have in their investment portfolio some are but many really not all that engaged with what's in their portfolios because ultimately it's quite boring to them this collection of I don't know, bond funds and hedge funds you know it's really quite boring um, for some clients where they want to be more engaged is on the other side where they do want the, the other side is not about capital preservation it's definitely about growing um, the assets and we will see that more um, sometimes where there's the next generation and we're looking the, the, the family office principal is looking for ways to get the next generation involved and engaged. So sometimes direct investing will will sort of scratch that itch for a next generation. We, we see that relatively um, frequently. And real estate, I think, is different again because people just enjoy real estate in a way that they don't particularly enjoy <laughs> multi-asset portfolios. Session, right? <laughs> um, so I, I think that that that's just you know that's just something that's very tangible and enjoyable for people um i mean not to say that people shouldn't enjoy multi-asset portfolios but fundamentally <laughs> they feel very different to experience um and then of course you know on the real estate on, on the real estate side and on the direct investment side that really is about growth that's what people are looking for there and uh, also they're looking for um they may not say this but they're also looking for a narrative 
and a forward narrative drive, which again, you're not going to get from this very careful and thoughtful positioning in a in a multi-asset portfolio. It, it's, you know, these are difficult concepts to, to express and then to talk about with people who are not in your uh, not in your investment management world. So I think for those reasons, like for me, I would say on the investment portfolio side, capital preservation is the first and most important principle. Um, and then capital growth comes after that once you have secured the, the capital for the long term. But capital growth... Um, will come in in the other asset classes that we advise clients on, and again, it's it, they're just completely different tenor of relationship with the clients. Um, something that Andrew mentioned before, and you have alluded during our conversation, is the long term orientation disposition that comes with a family office. By default, they do tend to have sometimes even multi generational horizons, because that's the way that they were set up. Um, in a world that is very short-term driven and in an industry that is obsessed with the next three months, that must be very refreshing. And I guess it must be a little bit of a competitive advantage as well to have that removed. Is that true? Is that the case in practice? Because that's, that's the theory. And how does that help you position your process so that you are able to take advantage of that horizon, especially over the last two years when things had gotten very volatile very quickly and very scary with a lot of incomplete information. Yes, I, th I mean, family offices are long-term capital. I would almost say that I think as a general rule, probably families could value their liquidity more highly than they do in terms of what the market will offer them mm. for liquidity that they will bring to the market. Um, I think it's difficult to say I'm going to lock my money up for five years, ten mm. years, but I almost think more families could probably get comfortable with locking up for longer. It's beginning to happen, um, partly because other asset classes are just not really delivering at the moment. So mm. you, you tend to see a slight shift towards more private capital, for example, more of a longer lockup. Um, I think here, though, it's an area where perhaps the industry slightly lags the clients. So we do see clients who now are beginning to think, OK, I can lock up. Uh, I'd be content to lock up and maybe I can lock up for longer. Uh, but a private equity fund is a three to five year experience. Um, and that's fine, but actually for some clients at the sort of most sophisticated end, they could lock up for 10 years. Mm. And, and they are one of the few groups out there that mm. could afford to lock up for 10 mm. years. And it's, I think it's difficult actually for the industry to offer the kind of products that mm -hmm. allow yeah. you to lock up for 10 years. And we can understand why the incentives are very different, difficult in that situation. But, but there you do see, yes, they're beginning to want to lock up for longer. And sometimes some of our clients are reacting to the slight lag in the industry around these products that just don't quite fit the need by doing their own. So they're doing more direct investing and where they'll go into a direct investment with no idea of an exit. Like, it doesn't matter. I'm This is a long-term hold. But then you get back to this cycle where, you know, this is a family. They had an uh, operating business. They sold the operating business. They've been financial investors. Now they're going back into operating businesses. 
because it's mm. interesting for them to first of all it sort of brings the family gives the family direction yeah. but it's also a way to be you know kind of really locked in for a long time without really having to worry about it or worry about interacting with the financial services industry in the way that the financial services industry wants to interact with you so i think we have definitely seen a shift in that way but having said that you know, I do think it's hard for anyone to be a 40-year investor, even if you yeah. can be. Mm. You know, people find that really hard to think about. And as we know from, you know, the pensions that we've got, there's a reason why you put your money in your pension and you are not allowed to touch it. You mm. literally can't because people just find it hard to think about 40 years and not to touch anything yeah. for 40 <laughs> years. It's really difficult. What, what's interesting about that is that when they founded their own businesses, those, that, that investment itself is there for the next whatever number of years which is long, very long-term in nature. I think I could, I could talk about this for hours and hours, but uh, <laughs> the clock might be against us. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, before we let you go, um, we will sign off our podcast with, with two sign signature questions, uh, the first of which is, um, do you have any a book that you'd like to recommend um, to our listeners? You, you kind of stole my thunder earlier, Juan, because I was going to say <laughs> Morgan Household, the psychology <laughs> of money, um, which I thought was fantastic, actually. And it's a, it's deceptive because it's really light mm -hmm. and easy to read, but there's so much in it that is relevant. I need to go back and read it again because there's so much in it. And one of the things that I took away from it is he's got this quote in there, which is, um, your experience of money is 0.000001% of how money works mm. but it's 80 percent of how you think money works mm. and i really like that i mean i'm sure that's true for all sorts of areas of life mm. um but i really like that and it, it's one of the reasons why you want to have investment processes in place whatever your level of engagement with money whether it's you know whether you're a family office or whether it's your own money just have processes in place so that you're trying to just not be swayed by that 0.001 mm. all the time because that's what will you know damage your damage your ability to sort of sustain as an investor it's a fantastic book it's a great recommendation that's great i remember i hope i'm remembering the right book but uh he was talking about how he doesn't have a mortgage even though it, you know that doesn't make you know the spreadsheet says interest rates are on the floor i should have a mortgage well, you should but have a mortgage, which yeah. doesn't come to you know you can afford not to and it says that i just for me that you know that's what money means to me um yeah, great book. Thank you. Great recommendation. <laughs> Good. Uh, our second question is, um, can you tell us about a decision um, that ended in a poor outcome um, where you can identify the outcome as being due to actually poor process uh, and not bad luck? Yes, well, the, the most obvious example for me is Brexit, I would say. Not that that was my decision, obviously, <laughs> but um, we had Brexit written down on our risk map for years years and years and it was written down as a, um, a a risk which would have a high impact on us but a low probability of happening uh, and of course what happened was you know it, it wasn't a low probability yeah. it actually was a high probability of staring us in the face and we didn't really notice it and funnily enough I think it's actually had much less of an impact than we thought it would that's still a sort of to be seen but still I think we got that wrong on on every level uh, why did we get that wrong um, I think number one, and this was Vitaly Kitsanelson's um, concept, this myopic circles. You know, you live in a world where everybody you know probably works in investment management mm -hmm. or something similar here in London, and everybody is voting in a certain way. So mm. you think everybody is voting mm. in a certain way. 
So that's one thing, I think. And I think, again, you know, opening up the room and having other people in the room and talking to other people, as you know, as you do on this podcast, having different walks of life come and talk to you, it's really fantastically powerful. But the other thing I think about that Brexit point was that it was on our risk map and it was on our risk map for a long, long time. And it's one of the problems, I think, with the process of the process that we've all got risk maps and checklists and actually you can kill yourself with all of this really important but fundamentally really dull bureaucracy around decision making mm. and it's really important but we need to think of ways to keep it live so that you're not oh here's the risk map again let's just look yeah. at this again tick tick that's fine that's fine but you know you sort of stop thinking after a certain point mm. because you know what's on it and you've thought about it before and it's done and finished and or it hasn't happened so the risk hasn't manifested itself so you just yeah. start to brush it off discard that one that, mm. yeah we can we can discount become more that. complacent about it yeah 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 I, I think you know in a funny way that whole brexit situation has has you know it's it's given us all a bit of a sort of shake up um that we can't afford to be as as casual and as cavalier perhaps as we were in thinking about particularly about political issues. I mean, it's just been an endless sort of tidal wave of political challenges ever since, I think. And I think we've perhaps become a little bit casual and cavalier about all of those things. That's fantastic, Charlotte Thorne. Thank you very much for coming to the Bible Perspective podcast. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. Fantastic. Thank you.